Welcome to Cato Audio for May 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, author Peter Shuck discusses government failure. Author Michael Malice demystifies North Korea. Sigrid Fry Revere talks about two kidney shortages. Cato's Ben Friedman evaluates the war in Libya. And reporter and author Betty Metzger tells us more about J. Edgar Hoover's secret FBI. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. We are fast approaching one year since we first learned, officially at least, that the NSA has maintained vast databases of Americans' calling records, emails, and quite likely all sorts of other data about our digital communications. Contrary to the Constitution and the under oath claims of the White House's Director of National Intelligence, James Clapper, we've also learned that the NSA has worked not just to crack encrypted messages, but also to weaken encryption standards. And most recently, we've learned that the NSA may have known about a vulnerability in one of the most basic security technologies used on the web, SSL, which is what makes your shopping experiences and other communications secure online. And instead of telling everyone to fix the problem, the NSA may have simply used that security hole to gather intel. And of course, there's a lot more that we won't get into today. Uh, This last year has been a busy one for the people I'm talking to today. Dan Frumkin is a senior writer at The Intercept, the news outlet launched by Glenn Greenwald and others in the wake of these revelations about the NSA's activities. And Julian Sanchez, a research fellow here at the Cato Institute, who's been doing yeoman's work here, helping educate the public about the powerful implications of these revelations about the national security state. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks. Great to be here. So uh, just to start here, uh, we're going to talk mostly about reform. And as I said before we uh, got rolling, I don't want to get too much into the weeds of a lot (laughs) of uh, technological uh, ins and outs. But but Julian, uh, these these most recent revelations, if they prove true, uh, are essentially just sort of a microcosm of what we've been learning about the NSA for the past year. So the intelligence community has uh, pretty unambiguously denied knowing specifically about the so-called Heartbleed bug, which is a kind of catastrophic vulnerability in one of the most widely used pieces of software that secures uh, internet uh, web traffic. Now, they may have known about this particular one, and they may not. Um, Frankly, even if they didn't know about it, two years ago, uh, if they had any kind of advance notice of it at all, um, they might have been able to use it to steal the encryption keys from websites very quickly in order to unlock the vast archives of encrypted traffic they routinely store. But the bigger picture here is that what we know absolutely without a, a doubt is that for at least a decade, the NSA has had a very aggressive program called Bull Run, which is aimed at weakening widely used global and commercial encryption standards and protocols and software in order to ensure that they never encounter a communication they are not able to listen in on. And as the President's Surveillance Review Group uh, pointed out very forcefully in their recommendations to the President, uh, this is a fundamental tension at the heart of NSA's mission. NSA is at the same time supposed to act as a foreign intelligence offensive secret stealing security breaking organization and as an information assurance 
organization devoted to keeping secrets and improving security. And we've had already uh, scandals arising where they've uh, basically told one major uh, encryption and security company that they were helping to improve their security software when, in fact, uh, they were giving advice that was weakening that security software. Uh, and in this case, you know, this is certainly the kind of vulnerability that NSA should try to know about. Uh, it's the kind of thing where you want them to be cooperating with global security researchers who are looking for these kind of vulnerabilities. But that tension in their mission uh, really presents a dilemma to researchers who want to try and give uh, a heads up to NSA because, you know, you tell Google about a security vulnerability or Yahoo, well, you can be pretty sure all they're going to do with it is try and patch their servers and fix the vulnerability to keep people safe. The NSA, because it's got those two missions, well, on the one hand, they're going to want to patch their systems, but on the other hand, they're going to want to try and use it and exploit it quickly before it's patched. Uh, and I think that's one reason the Surveillance Re Review Group suggested that this really ought to be broken out into a separate organization, that you can't, uh, in a sense, serve two masters with such radically opposed missions uh, at NSA. All right. Dan Frumkin, uh, with respect to reform, it seems like it's maybe getting harder to tell who the who the good guys are here. What, what do you evaluate? Well, it's, that, I mean, that's the thing, amazing thing about the Snowden revelations is that uh, we, we've been learning uh, fundamentally that the NSA wasn't just out trying to crack uh, the encryption of the bad guys. It was out trying to crack everybody's encryption. It wasn't just out trying to collect the communications of the bad guys. It was out to collect everybody's information. That's been the most astonishing uh, finding of this, and that's why... Uh, it isn't clear at this point whether, you know, if you go to the NSA uh, because you found a, a, some sort of exploit, whether you're giving them a, a bomb or whether you're asking them to put it out. To, uh, so that that's very galling. Um, as, as to the issue of, of separating the two jobs, that was very much a, one of the key recommendations of the President's Review Board. Uh, it is not one that uh, any of the folks who could make it happen have expressed any enthusiasm for. And in fact, just weeks after the, the Review Board came out, uh, you know, President Obama appointed a new guy to take over from Keith Alexander, explicitly wearing both of those hats at the same time. It's it's a it's a black hat, it's a white hat, and uh, thanks to Snowden, we can actually see both at the same time. I, actually, this, you remind me that one of the uh, great stories I saw at the Intercept um, that I, I wish had gotten more attention than it has um, was about the breadth of NSA's targets. Uh, this is the. I hunt sysadmins story, as I think of it, because this is an NSA analyst who proudly declared that uh, what he likes to do is not just target foreign intelligence agents or foreign terrorists, but system administrators who have uh, what, what the analyst called the keys to the kingdom. And the idea here is, uh, look, you may need to be able to spy on foreign communications networks in the future, and so what you want to do is target not just bad actors, but people who work in information technology so you can steal their passwords, build backdoors into those systems, and make sure, again, that every communication system around the world is vulnerable to NSA when it needs to spy. And so this is important because we hear again and again about how, well, it's so important for NSA to be uh, knowing what our enemies are up to and knowing what terrorists are plotting. But it's clear that their ambit and their mission is uh, much broader than that. And maybe they didn't recognition of, of kind of global concern about this fact that one of the concrete reform steps we've seen so far 
is President Obama's PPD or Presidential Policy Directive 28, which for the first time suggests that some of the protections that apply to information about Americans, the so-called minimization requirements that say, in, in essence, uh, if you collect information about Americans, uh, you have to limit whether you, uh, you can only keep it um, and spread it around and disseminate it. Uh, if it's really sort of important for a foreign intelligence purpose, you can't just do it uh, indiscriminately or because it's nice to have things. Uh, and so for the first time, this has said, well, look, some of those protections are also going to have to apply to foreigners, that you're really going to have to demonstrate a foreign intelligence purpose if you're going to keep or disseminate information even about uh, people who are not American citizens. It's not clear yet, of course, just how much that will mean in practice. Right. And of course, that's always the big question, uh, both in, in intelligence generally and, and with President Obama in particular. You know, but the, you're talking about the, the hunting sysadmins, I think it's a great example of just how the uh, the mission of the NSA had just spun completely out of control. I mean, beyond, you know, beyond even that which some of us fantasized about. You know, there was a lot of lot of people out there, uh, you know, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, who warned that the NSA would turn into a, a you know the the tool of a of a de facto surveillance state. But I don't think even they expected that you know, that we'd be targeting our own sysadmins, our, our own people who we put in charge of systems at banks and at telecom companies and so on to to keep us secure. And I think what happened was that ever since nine eleven, uh, things have just gotten more and more extreme because there have been no limits placed because what they found out is that they're working in absolute secrecy and no one, either no one had any idea what they were doing or the very few people who did set virtually no limits to this. I mean, I, I, I guess there's some FISA court rulings that say a few things are out of line, but I mean, the big question I'd like to ask, you know, the NSA folks are, okay, give me a list of 10 things you don't do. <laughs> and I actually, I, 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 I asked, uh, I asked uh, uh, one NSA official, and he refused to answer that. So, so uh, with respect to that, there has to have been some sort of huge disconnect between the standard of standards of evidence used for data gathering that the public, that mm -hmm. Congress has understood, mm -hmm. and the standard of evidence for data gathering that has been understood within the NSA. Can you flesh out a, a picture of of that disconnect? Well, I just want to tell you when you say when, that Congress has understood, it is possible that a very small and select group of members of Congress actually knew what was going on. I say possible because it's actually pretty unlikely because A, you'd assume that they got briefed accurately. B, you assume that they were actually able to ask questions, that they knew enough to ask intelligent questions. C, that the, answers, the questions were answered honestly. D, that they were paying attention. E, that they remembered. F, that they, they cared at all. Uh, these, you know, it's, it, so, so, so I would hazard that there were probably no members of Congress who really truly understood this. You could actually even say nobody at the NSA really understood this because as one of my favorite early documents uh, came out, um, was the NSA told the FISA court, we can't really tell you what's going on because we, we, nobody really has a, the no, system, no one person has right. a sense of the breadth of it. The system <laughs> is so massive, right, that no particular, there's no one person who, who understands everything. There's actually a great quote from uh, DNI James Clapper, I think from his confirmation hearing. He said there's only one entity that, in the universe that has visibility on all our special access programs, and that's God. Uh, <laughs> so we, we instead have Dianne Feinstein and Mike Rogers in charge yeah. of oversight. They're not a completely perfect substitute uh, for the right. Almighty. But then, but then not only are they, are they 
considerably imperfect substitutes, but uh, they quickly bought into this whole regime. And so once you start going down that slope, uh, I think the, pro the progression accelerates and there's no stopping it. Um, and so once they were complicit and they said, fine, then it, where do they draw the line? And there were no effective lines drawn, not by Congress, very few, if any, by the FISA courts. Uh, you know, the executive branch basically let the intelligence community run the show. The, the media, uh, although eventually published a few stories, that ev the biggest one of which it actually held on President Bush's request for to get past his, his re-election campaign. Um, but the media had basically not assertively, aggressively followed this story. It's a hard story. And, and you know, what the, 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 the great gift of the Snowden documents is we finally have a cudgel that we can use on the NSA to say, don't, we're not coming begging you to find things out. We're telling you what we know. You know, there's actually an interesting pattern you see, I think, across a lot of the different programs, uh, both in NSA and other elements of the intelligence community, which is, it works something like this. They say, well, we want some extraordinary new power to do very, very large-scale collection, but don't worry, it won't be indiscriminate. If you let us collect all this information, um, what we'll do is we'll have very rigorous limitations on the back end that constrain what we can do with it, how we can share it. Um, and then what happens over time is either, A, it turns out that all these restrictions on which this broad authority to collect was premised uh, turned out to have been obeyed. Uh, so we found that uh, with respect to the telephone records program and the internet metadata program, where there was just bulk collection of, of metadata about vast, vast, vast numbers of communications for at least the first three years, all these restrictions uh, the FISA court had imposed uh, that made them feel comfortable authorizing such broad collection had basically not been adhered to. And so information was supposed to only be shared for counterterrorism purposes, uh, and in fact it turned out being shared for uh, you know, essentially a whole range of other purposes as well. Uh, you see this also with respect to 702 collection, so-called uh, the FISA Amendments Act, Section 702, which authorizes uh, kind of dragnet, general warrant-style collection uh, as long as the target is foreign. Of course, the foreign target can be an entire website, for instance. So lots of American stuff gets swept in as well. And initially, at least, NSA was constrained in how it could search that database. You're getting so many millions of communications then that because the targets are supposed to be non-Americans, you can't then go into the database and sort of use the back door to search for American communications uh, that if you had wanted to target them at the outset, you would have had to get a search warrant approved by a judge based on probable cause. And then in 2011, the FBI had apparently already been doing this, but uh, they get the court to loosen the restrictions and say, okay, well, now you can search this huge database for American information. I think that's a kind of a ratchet effect we see over right, time. Right. Huge powers, but don't worry, restrictions on the back end, and then, well, Since we, we don't have it already, right. you know, what are we going to do? Exactly. Not use it? No, I mean, that, that's, that explains sort of the, uh, the, the conservative Republican response to, uh, angry response to a lot of the uh, Snowden findings, especially regarding Section 215 of the Patriot Act and and uh, and the bulk collection of, of telephone metadata, because people like you know James Ensenbrenner did not pass this law uh, thinking that it was going to be used this way. There was that one word, relevant. <laughs> you know that word has been abused by the intelligence community in a way that is just absolutely beyond belief. Relevant to them means we collect everything. Yeah. 
and then we look through it. I've, and I've, exactly, I've, like I've, you said, exactly. They, so they say they say everything's relevant because we look through it, and uh, because because we won't look through it. And then they say, well, well, since we have it, we'll you know we'll look through it. Now, at the end of 2012, uh, it's almost comedic the way that the uh, oversight. Uh, was handled. We had been promised for a long time that we would get a proper review of surveillance authorities. And then at the end of 2012, we learn, oh, they're about to expire. So we have to reauthorize them right away. So we've always, we've known at least for a while that this oversight has been at least shoddy. But moving to reform uh, and getting some sort of meaningful oversight over this apparatus, where is that headed, Dan? Uh Unclear. You, you, you know, predicting Congress is a bit like predicting uh, the the motion of random particles. Sure, uh, but we've you've got Rand Paul with a, with a with a lawsuit, and you have some movement. Uh, we had the Republican-controlled House that came very close to reigning in reigning in some authorities. Yes, well, that was extraordinary. I mean, the the vote on the Amash Amendment, people seem to forget, was this was pre-Snowden, and it was very close, and that was to to repeal some of the uh, some of the Patriot Act authorities. Um, What's happened since is is there's been a lot of movement back and forth. Uh, one trend I'm seeing is that there are a large number of sort of rank and file members of both parties who feel that something needs to change. There are a lot of members of the leadership of both parties who have been essentially complicit in in the in the regime over the years, including the the leaders of the various intelligence committees. Well, the Senate Intelligence Committee, not so much the House anymore. Um, who 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 feel who feel like they have to defend the status quo. But there is a a critical mass that does seem to be emerging to do something. Now the question is, what will that be? And they can take baby steps, they can take pretend steps, or they can take a big step. And the USA Freedom Act, which is uh, you know bipartisan legislation. Um, is is the sort of the the big step that that a lot of uh, folks who are suspicious of the surveillance regime would like to see passed. Um, what is more likely is that they'll take some baby steps. Uh, so, for instance, um, there were a few bills just introduced uh, recently, which Julian, our national treasurer, can tell you about. Right. So, um, the certainly the most comprehensive reform bill that affects not just Section Two Fifteen, which is the basis of that telephone records program, but a, a range of other authorities, including national security letters, which don't require judicial approval. Um, that is uh, sponsored by Senator Patrick Leahy and Congressman Jim Sensenbrenner. Uh, as we record this right now, uh, the Judiciary Committee House Chairman, uh, Representative Goodlatte, has been sort of stalling on uh, bringing that up for a vote, uh, even though it seems actually pretty clear it probably has enough votes to pass the House right now. Uh, so instead, what's moving forward is we have President Obama with a kind of very limited proposal um, to really just sort of tweak the uh, telephony metadata program, not even that one authority more broadly, which can be used for all sorts of records, uh, but just as it applies to phone records. Uh, and, and in fact, that proposal, um, there's a, a sort of broader version that has been proposed by leaders of the House Intelligence Committee that affects not just phone records, but all electronic communication records, actually creates a new authority that in some ways is broader and could be interpreted to require phone companies and internet companies not just to turn over records, but to create the specific kinds of records that the government wants. So will Congress be bold? I think it's safe to say that they will not. 
You will seldom, you will seldom lose a bet uh, wagering against congressional boldness. Exactly. All right, gentlemen, we're going to leave it there. Dan Frumkin, senior writer at The Intercept, and Julian Sanchez, a research fellow here at the Cato Institute. You can follow more of this uh, at, at theintercept.org and uh, some of our uh, communications and other writings and videos and podcasts on this subject, cato.org. From the doctor's office to the workplace, the federal government is claiming more responsibility for managing our lives. And at the same time, Americans have never been more disaffected with a Washington they see as an incompetent and wasteful intruder. Author Peter Shuck's new book is Why Government Fails So Often and How It Can Do Better. He lays out a wide range of examples and an enormous body of evidence to explain why so many domestic policies go so wrong. He spoke at the Cato Institute in March. So I begin with the notion of a crisis. And of course, every book uh, is trying to sell the idea that there's a crisis. Uh, and this is particularly a, a, a crisis um, that, again, uh, Cato um, followers uh, are aware of and, and indeed have uh, emphasized in your own, in your own lives. Um, I have a lot of data on the decline in public confidence in the federal government. I will only mention uh, a, few, uh, a few points. Um, of, of special interest. Uh, even among Democrats, there has been a rapid and, and, and precipitous decline in uh, confidence. 41% uh, uh, had uh, favorable views of the federal government in, in 2013. That's 41% of Democrats. That's down 10% in one year. And this was before Obamacare uh, was, was uh, launched. Um, according to the Brookings Institution, 56% of Democrats um, believe that the federal government is mostly or completely broken. Democrats. And uh, I mentioned that these statistics were gathered before uh, the Obamacare uh, fiasco uh, in its rollout. Uh, Tom Edsel, in an op-ed in The Times yesterday, uh, suggests that uh, the consequences of that rollout are far greater than... Uh, is uh, anticipated by uh, by most political observers. He thinks it's going to ramify uh, throughout the next uh, several uh, elections. Uh, what is the biggest threat uh, to America's future, according to the public? 64% say it's big government, uh, while only 26% said big business. And this, this uh, polling was conducted only a few years after the recession. Uh, so that's a, uh, it seems to me a very telling uh, a point of uh, departure. In 2011, 79% uh, of those polled were frustrated or angry with the federal government. 74% said the same thing in 2007 before the recession. Now, what are the reasons for this decline in public confidence in the government? I propose uh, several explanations, but the one that I'm going to con concentrate on and the one that constitutes the bulk of my analysis is sort of a straightforward one. The government performs very, very poorly. When I say the government, by the way, I'm referring to the federal government, not other governments, and I'm referring to domestic policy, not national security, military, or foreign affairs policy. My book is limited in those respects. So that's my subject, why government fails. There are a variety of theories as to why uh, the, the government performs so poorly. Um, 
an emphasis uh, that will not surprise those of you who live in Washington is the, is the uh, explanation of partisan bickering and congressional paralysis. Um, the Democrats blame the Republicans, the Republicans blame the Democrats uh, for any failures that they're prepared to concede. Uh, I emphatically disagree with this. Uh, if you examine our history of political discourse, it has been tendentious, uncivil, angry, and uh, furiously uh, a partisan from the very, very beginning. Uh, some of the greatest achievements of the past, uh, the uh, Intercontinental Railroad and uh, Hoover Dam and Interstate Highway uh, System were accomplished only fitfully and after a protracted disagreement uh, by uh, policymakers. Polarization, I argue, is not the cause of our problems, it's the consequence of our problems. And there's a remarkable correlation that I think uh, confirms this uh, point of view. Uh, first is that the growth in government spending and policy ambitions has paralleled almost perfectly, if you, if you chart them, the growth in public disaffection and contempt for government. The per capita spending by the federal government um, today is greater than in France, Germany, uh, and the UK. This, this growth occurs in good times and bad. It's unlinked. It's been set adrift from the Keynesian uh, cyclical uh, uses of, of government. Um, and it doesn't depend on whether Republicans or Democrats uh, control what goes on in Washington. North Korea is the least free state on the planet. But Americans and others around the world, instead of recoiling at the cold brutality of the regime and the wealth it destroys, often simply laugh at its longtime funny-looking leader, Kim Jong-il. Author Michael Malice, in an attempt to demystify the regime, has written Dear Reader, the unauthorized autobiography of Kim Jong-il. He spoke at the Cato Institute in March. North Korea to me, and I think to m most people would agree, is probably the lowest hanging fruit for the liberty movement. It is the least free nation on earth. It is a huge symbol of the horrors of, cap of communism, the horrors of dictatorship and totalitarianism. So I said, and we, we also, there's a lot of hand wringing about how do we get people thinking about these ideas and uh, concerned about the ideas that we're so passionate about, the ideas of liberty. And everyone in America is a libertarian vis-a-vis -vis North Korea. So I went there uh, a couple of years back, and I bought armfuls of the propaganda. And usually when I write a book with a celebrity, I sit down, I work with them, we interview, we go back and forth. I did not have that privilege here. Uh, but there was no doubt, people asked me, how do you know what Kim Jong-il really thought about different issues? And the idea that, People in North Korea don't know what he thought about everything is kind of crazy because we know what he thought about magic tricks and gymnastics and cooking and architecture and cinema and, and opera and music and even dance notation because he wrote about all these things. And in fact, when you live in that country, you have to know what he thinks about everything because if you go against it, you're defying the state. And when you defy the state, it has very negative consequences. And I think one of the biggest problems I had and what I tried to set out to do with this book is to fight this idea that North Korea is a carnival. I met with a woman who runs a, a 
group fighting for human rights in North Korea, and she said this is a big problem they face. They face the idea that it's been kind of fetishized, that people look at it as a joke, and there's two ways to change that approach. You can either ignore it and try to have, move the conversation over here, or you could do what I did, which is you step into the spotlight where the attention is now, which is on Kim Jong-il the clown, and once you're in that spotlight is to change people's understanding of what he means and what he represents and what life is really like over there. Because Ayn Rand, when she spoke in, 19, in the 1950s in front of the House on American Activities Committee, she was being interviewed by this uh, Congress in Pennsylvania, and incredulously, he goes, you know, I know Russians, don't they visit their mothers-in-law? Don't they have, you know, picnics? And she goes, you have to understand, it's almost completely impossible for a free people to know what it's like to live under a totalitarian dictatorship. And in a way, it's a good thing that you don't know. Yes, they visit their mothers-in-law, but they're living in complete terror from morning to night, and at night you're waiting for the doorbell to ring, where anyone can do anything to you, where human life means nothing and you know it. And that's something else that I think most people in the West don't understand. North Koreans increasingly are aware of just how bad they have it. And in fact, the propaganda has changed. The propaganda used to be the whole world envies us. We have it so great. And as more and more people went to China and to the South and word got back, because it's very hard to fight word of mouth, now the propaganda is, yes, we're poor, but we're building happier tomorrow. It's very easy to convince the people who have no access to the outside world that they're wealthy and happy. It's very difficult to convince the people that they have more food on their plate than they did a year ago or that their children aren't hungry. Uh, and the way they fight these things are just so tragic. For example, when the famine first started hitting in the 90s, Kim Jong-il launched a campaign that was called Let's Eat Two Meals a Day Instead of Three. Because the idea is if you're less hungry, then you won't need as much food. It's just a matter of willpower. And yes, we understand it's oppressive, but we don't understand just how oppressive it is. For example, everyone in the whole country once a week has to engage in a criticism session where you get up and you say what you did wrong this week, and then your neighbors or your colleagues have to get up and denounce you. And this happens every week for everyone in the entire country. Everyone is always watching each other. There's never a moment of peace. So yes, when they repeat these absurd Kim Jong-il stories or they smile and nod, uh, they have to do it because they have guns to their head. It's not like a Democrat versus Republican thing where I'm putting my point of view across, you're putting your view across. You have to parrot the views of the regime. And if there's any chance that you're saying something that can be regarded as wrong, there will be very big consequences. And North Korea does something else that's unique and, and particularly reprehensible. You know, Rick Santorum, who's a wonderful person that everyone loves, uh, is fond of saying that the family is the basic unit of society. Well, I don't know what he thinks the word unit means, but in my dictionary, unit is that which cannot be reduced any further. And in North Korea, they take this seriously. The family is the basic unit of society in North Korea, so that when you are punished for a crime, they punish your entire family. In fact, they come for you in the middle of the night, three generations are taken to the camps, and you're never sure who it was that got your whole family sent there. And sometimes people even get released from these camps. It's, it's not always a death sentence, but that is what it's like, you know, living in a nation where the family is the basic unit of society. So one of the things I tried to do with this book uh, was to maintain his tone, but at the same time laying bare in a paddle, palatable way, in the kind of book you can read on the plane or a book you can read on a train, what their history was, what their worldview is like. They're not crazy in any sense. They have an internal logic of their own. And for a nation that's supposedly so crazy and so suicidal, somehow they've managed to outlast all these other nations. So clearly they're doing something right. 
In the 90s, when the famine hit, rather than having the UN come in and, and send people food, they were just shown around to the best places and everything looked great. And Kim Jong-il chose to have 10% of his nation starve rather than allow the UN to send food. And he recognized this. He said, if we let the people fend for themselves, they won't need the government, so we can't have that happen. So anytime you see these you know, articles about Dennis Rodman, or uh, there was a piece in, I think it was The Guardian, where they referred to Kim Jong-un's mini-skirted robot army about the women you know, marching in lockstep in parades, they're denying the humanity of these 24 million people who are suffering enormously. Uh, they are treating it as a carnival when it's not a carnival, it's a bloodbath. Uh, I always compare Kim Jong-il to the Batman villain, the Joker, where everyone sees the clown, but no one's mentioning the bodies behind him. So it was my hope in writing this book to have, yes, a very kind of humorous and tongue-in-cheek approach as a way to get people interested in the subject. I think most people who are interested in liberty are interested in the subject. And once they start to realize what it's like that's going on over there, they start to wonder how it is they could have ever found any aspect of the situation humorous in the slightest. Iran doesn't have much over the United States in terms of freedom, except perhaps for one thing. Iranians may be compensated for donating kidneys. In doing so, Iran has dramatically reduced the shortage of those organs nationwide. Sigrid Fry Revere is author of The Kidney Sellers, A Journey of Discovery in Iran. She spoke at the Cato Institute in March. Everybody has somebody that they don't like or don't get along with, whether it's a colleague or a neighbor. Now imagine that that person lives down the street from you in your neighborhood, and an epidemic hits, and children are dying. Your children are dying. But you notice that that person that you don't like, that person you don't get along with, that their children are not dying. And my question is, how long does it take you to walk down the street and knock on that person's door and say, hey, what are you doing differently than I am? In the case of Iran, it took us 30 years. It took us 30 years to go knock on that person's door. Okay, And I was the first person to go over and take a look and say, hey, Iran, why are your children not dying? When here in the United States, 20 to 30 people die every day because they can't get a kidney. So why did this happen? Why are people dying here and people not dying in Iran? The reason is because at the time of the Iranian Revolution, Iran, like the rest of the world, was building a system of cadaver organ donation. Because 35 years ago, we thought we could solve, everyone thought, they could solve the organ shortage with cadaver organs. And so Iran was part of the Euro network for organ sharing, and they were sharing back and forth technology and, and even patients. And then when the revolution came, they were cut off from that network, and internally they didn't have the structure or the know-how to pursue cadaver organ donation the way the rest of the world was doing. So what did they do? They fell back on the old system. And the old system, at least for kidneys, which makes up 90% of the organ shortage worldwide, was living donors. So we had two parallel tracks going. 
The US and most of the world said, if we don't have to use human beings, why should we put them at risk? Let's use cadaver organs instead. And then you had Iran, who was excluded from the new technology and the learning that was going on, saying, we're going to just keep going like we've been going and work on using living donors. Well, what it turns out is that we bet on the wrong horse. Okay? We spent all our time and effort developing cadaver organ donation, and we have never caught up. The, the crisis gets worse and worse. We have over 100,000 people right now waiting for kidneys. Maybe 15% will be transplanted this year. The rest will languish and die on dialysis. In Iran, for 15 years now, if you qualify medically to donate an organ, you get on the list and you get one. So what happened here, right? And, and, and why? Um, essentially, technology isn't the answer to everything. Sometimes there are answers that are human-based. No matter what we do, even if every single person was an organ donor when they died, we still would not have enough organs to solve the organ shortage. Okay. Iran has started now again to develop technologies for cadaver organ donation. And we, who've had and tolerated living donation all along, I mean, half the donors in this country even 30 years ago were living donors. We just didn't work on developing systems that helped the donors donate. We focused on cadaver while they focused on living. And what they've done over the past 30 years is they've made mistakes, they've made improvements, they've changed things, they've, you know, policies differed 30 years ago than they do now, and they even have regional experiments. In some of the poorer regions, the system is not working at all. In some of the more affluent regions, it's working beautifully, and they have waiting lists for people to donate. Can you imagine that? I mean, we've got 100,000 people waiting for kidneys, and they've got a waiting list for people to donate in some regions. So what did Iran do? The main thing to realize is that they legalized compensated donation. When I talk to people on this issue, they have this image of when money is involved, they have the image of the black market. What they see is desperately poor people violating the law, risking imprisonment, risking you know, um, not being cared for after their surgery, back alley type stuff, which is horrific. But that's what they envision when they envision money being involved. Now, what first thing Iran did was it legalized it, which made it safe, normalized the process, and they started to regulate it to make sure that Donors got their money. Recipients got people who were well-tested and weren't sick with AIDS or malaria, like what happens on the black market. And so they normalized the process by legalizing it. And at this point, it isn't that the desperate don't still donate occasionally in Iran, but the majority of people who donate for compensated kidney donation in Iran are the middle class. They're the buyers and the sellers, because you've taken the danger out of the process. Okay, by, it's by legalizing it. The second thing they did, and they didn't do this right away, they learned to do this, is that instead of focusing on the recipients who need kidneys, right? We know they need kidneys. They started focusing on what do donors need. This is an equation that takes two people. So their social services started to reach out to donors. Do you have a debt you need to pay off? 
Do you need health care, dental care, eye care? Do you need household goods, education? So what do you as a donor need to be able to donate? And this concept of sometimes money makes altruism possible started to develop. And the third thing is a shift in nomenclature, okay? We think of money and we think of selling. But in Iran, a kidney is not a widget. It's not something that um, a vendor sells. They think of donation as a service, a service to the recipient, a service to mankind, a service to their country. And so the money is what donors are given in addition to other benefits in order to make it possible for them to help another person. You might think of um, firefighters as an analogy. So what can we learn from them? Okay. I think that's ultimately what I'm hoping to get to. My book talks about how things work in different regions. It has donor stories. It has recipient stories. It has stories from the people who helped regulate the system when it first got started. But the real question is, we need to study. We need to look. We need to go knock on that door and say, hey, why are your people living while ours are dying? And I'm only the first. I hope other people you know, we'll go and take a look and study and think about these issues, do pilot projects, and say, money is not good or bad in itself. It's how you use it, right? So the fact that these donors are compensated in and of itself is not a bad thing. We have to figure out how to save Americans. And for all we know, it might be that neighbor down the street we don't like very much who has the answer. It's been three years since the start of months of bombs dropping in Libya. The American-led war was pitched as a humanitarian mission. So how did it turn out? At a Cato Policy Forum in March, Ben Friedman, a research fellow in Defense and Homeland Security Studies, said even on humanitarian grounds, the war in Libya made things worse. Democracy, I think we forget sometimes, requires salesmanship. And that's especially true when we're talking about U.S. foreign policy. As a rich, technologically adept country surrounded by docile neighbors and water, uh, that is an incredibly safe state by historical standards, uh, our wars are usually remotely linked, linked only in a, in a sort of esoteric way to our actual security and domestic well-being. We only fight wars of choice in the United States. Uh, so the leaders advocating them labor to convince us that they are wise. And the actual reason that a U.S. leader wants a war rarely exhausts the reasons that he or she gives in public in advocating for it. In the case of Libya, uh, the limited, uh, admittedly limited historical records suggest that the winning argument, uh, at least in the United States, that got President Obama to support the war, was the humanitarian argument. And the other arguments, the ones I'm focusing on, were at best secondary, maybe just PR. Uh, but whether or not those offering those arguments actually found them persuasive, uh, certainly some people listening did. So I think we, we, as analysts, need to take them seriously. 
And I should say that while I'm focusing here on what US leaders said, uh, you can find similar quotes from British and French leaders and probably from the heads of most of the 19 states uh, that ultimately contributed uh, to the war effort, though probably not cutters. Um, before I, I get into that, the one point uh, on the humanitarian side of things that Alan Cooperman didn't make, I don't think we ought to put a lot of stock in what uh, Gaddafi said in his rather crazed and incredibly long-winded ramblings. Uh, that said, uh, if you look at least at the translation, I don't speak Arabic, but if you look at the translations of uh, the speeches he gave when he said he was going to slaughter rats and so forth in Benghazi or wherever, he was, I think, talking about rebels, people who took up arms. And uh, if there's a quote that he gave that contradicts that uh, evaluation, I'd, I'd, uh, it, it may exist. It might have been recorded by the US government, but I haven't seen it. Um, so anyway, uh, one goal was to make Libya a democracy. Uh, then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, who was a key supporter of war, as ever, uh, made uh, this point about democracy repeatedly. President Obama said on uh, March 28th, 2011, 2011, quote, we must stand alongside those who believe this in the same core principles that have guided us through many storms. Our opposition to violence directed at one's own people, our support for a set of universal rights, including the freedom for people to express themselves and choose their leaders, our support for governments that are ultimately responsive to the aspirations of the people, unquote. A couple notable things about that remark. First, the president's presenting a false dichotomy where we either fight a war for people who aspire to freedom, uh, a proposition that requires a lot of war, or uh, we ignore those people entirely. Second, uh, the president is talking not just about democracy, meaning electing leaders, but about liberalism, which is a broader set of values involving individual rights and norms of cooperation. And I think that's sensible uh, to the extent that democracy without liberalism isn't worth much, but it's also overly uh, ambitious. Now, we could argue about whether the fact that it, Libya has elected a parliament that has no power uh, makes it a democratic state. But I think what's more important is that it remains uh, illiberal, as we heard. Uh, to add to what uh, Alan said, uh, a UN report from last fall uh, says that something like 8,000 people remain under arbitrary detention. Uh, reports of torture are widespread. Political assassinations, as the New York Times recently reported, remain rampant, especially in the East. And there, uh, even the moderate non-Islamist uh, militias uh, are supporting what they call federalism and what seems to be shading towards outright separatism. So it's not a civil war, and that's good news. It's not a war of all against all, but it's not close to being a, a liberal state. And while those particular troubles in Libya shouldn't be uh, seen as an inevitable result of Gaddafi's fall, uh, the general story shouldn't surprise anyone. Countries historically become liberal democracies. There's all sorts of scholarship about this. After they've developed a functional state that enforces laws, and uh, they agree on nationhood within the borders and agree to live by some governing rules. And as uh, Dirk Vanderwall, who's a leading expert on Libya, argued long ago, oil wealth let Libya grow into a state that spends money rather than extracting it uh, from the private economy via taxes. That retarded uh, the private sector by encouraging rent-seeking, where people, instead of innovating, uh, try to get a handout. And it retarded the public sector, because rather than build an administration to tax wealth and legitimize its collection uh, via a social contract, which is the past mo path most Western democracies took uh, to becoming the liberal states they are, Libya's rulers could simply tap 
oil revenue to buy off elites and fund the military. Uh, so the basis for state unity in Libya is weak, making cohesion, let alone uh, liberal democracy, I think, uh, a long shot, at least for a considerable while. The second major justification for uh, US and allied intervention, uh, to repeat, was that by fighting in Libya, we would show other Middle Eastern despots that the international community, community wouldn't allow them to repress protest movements or arm results. So we'd facilitate this revolutionary Arab Spring. Uh, and here's Obama on May 19th, uh, 2011, quote, had we not acted along with our NATO allies and regional coalition partners, thousands would have been killed. The message would have been clear, keep power by killing as many people as it takes, unquote. And here's then Senator, now Secretary of State John Kerry on March 26th of that year, quote, by responding and giving the, the uh, popular uprising a chance to take power, the US and other allies sent a message of solidarity with the aspirations of people everywhere that will be remembered for generations, rather than be forced to debate who lost Libya, the free world is poised to say, remember Tripoli every time demagogues question our motives. Um, and this is a credibility argument, a reverse domino theory where our reputation or the international community's reputation for resolve, instead of stopping communism spreads as, as Vietnam was supposed to, uh, unleashes revolutions that we hope will be liberal. Um, because credibility arguments attach peripheral concerns to more important ones, they're always used to justify wars where our interests are few. Besides Vietnam, examples include uh, the Balkan Wars, uh, the 90s, where um, some advocates uh, said we had to bomb uh, to protect NATO's reputation for resolve. And uh, more recently, uh, examples include Iraq and Afghanistan, where someone was always saying we couldn't leave because that would embolden enemies elsewhere. These sorts of credibility or domino arguments have two fatal flaws, I think. First, there's little evidence that the reputation of outside states for carrying out threats much matters to other leaders, especially those that are struggling to stay in power. Political scientists are nearly unanimous uh, in finding that the believability of state threats to go to war hardly depends on the outcome of their threats in other times and places. When leaders, uh, on the other side of this, when leaders are considering whether or not they should do something uh, despite some outside state's threats saying don't do it, uh, they focus mostly on the balance of power with that state and uh, on its interests there, uh, rather than looking at its history of carrying out past threats. Iran's leaders, for example, are unlikely to think that the UN's enforcement of a no-fly zone in Libya says much about uh, the UN's willingness to prevent them from killing protesters, just as Soviet leaders didn't, didn't measure American commitment to defend Germany by the war we fought in Vietnam. Second reason credibility arguments fail. Uh, even if credibility travels in this way, as the administration claims, it might backfire. We might give false hope encouraging rebellions that we aren't uh, prepared to defend, as we arguably did after the first Gulf War, and we encouraged an uprising and then watched it get crushed. And uh, our credibility, to the extent it exists, might encourage leaders like Assad to nip unrest in the bud, to heighten repression before protests morph into revolts that outside interveners can support. And the leader winds up, if he's lucky, in The Hague, or if he's unlucky, uh, being murdered on YouTube, like Gaddafi. Um, also, I think the sort of minimal cost war we fought in Libya isn't likely to impress too many enemies, at least those that can impose more costs uh, than Gaddafi. So whether or not you think revolutionary movements in the Middle East 
are a good thing. Uh, it seems unlikely that our war in Libya much affected them, but it, to the extent it did, it probably had a negative effect. In 1971, a group calling itself the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI broke into a branch office seeking evidence for what they had long suspected, that J. Edgar Hoover's FBI was engaged in a secret, illegal campaign of surveillance and harassment of American citizens. The documents they found revealed massive abuses of power. Reporter Betty Metzger was the first to receive and write about the secret files. Her new book, The Burglary, The Discovery of J. Edgar Hoover's Secret FBI, reveals a great deal more about the break-in and the abuses it revealed. She spoke at the Cato Institute in March. There's a historian, Richard Powers, who has written a few books on the FBI. And I think this uh, really sums up uh, the source of Hoover's power extremely well. He said, Hoover's power to conduct secret operations depended on the absolute freedom he had from any inquiry into the internal operations of the Bureau. It had been that luxury of freedom let, let him indulge himself with such abuses of power as his persecution of King, the COINTELPRO's, and his harassment of Bureau critics. On the night of March 8, 1971, that changed forever. A group calling itself the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI broke into the resident agency in Media, Pennsylvania. The burglars were never caught. And before I talk about the burglars, I'd just like to also point out one thing. I mentioned about the no oversight. I should also add that there also was no oversight by journalists. Uh, the FBI was reported on almost not at all. The burglars? were uh, pursued by 200 agents who uh, were uh, on this case, most of them in the Philadelphia area, New Jersey, but actually the investigation took place all over the country. And suddenly, all those photographs, thousands of photographs that had been taken at anti-war demonstrations, civil rights activities, those photos were asked for and they poured into the Philadelphia and Washington offices and to look, look for suspects. I'd like to tell you, introduce you to the, the burglars. There were eight people. Um, they started work, they met together for the first time as a group at the end of December, and they chose the name for themselves, the Citizens Commission to Investigate the FBI. And that's exactly how they thought of themselves, as a commission that might have been appointed by, or should have been appointed by a president, Congress, some official to investigate J. Edgar Hoover's FBI. And after the burglary, that's exactly how they behaved, going to this remote farmhouse every night and going through the thousands of files that they had stolen and collating, reading, um, and deciding uh, what, to, what to release. And they actually released all the ones that had any kind of a political notation to them. And as Jean said, they chose a very special night for them for the uh, burglary. They chose the night of the first Muhammad Ali-Joe Frazier fight. Uh, this was a very important fight. It's still called the fight of the century. Some people call it the sporting event of the century. 
It attracted huge attention all over the world, in part because Muhammad Ali was returning to the ring for the first time since he had uh, been uh, convicted six years earlier for refusing to, to serve in the army. Um, Joe Frazier, the divisions were very interesting. Joe Frazier had gone to the White House to meet with Nixon, and he was rooting for, Nixon was rooting for Joe Frazier and, and helped uh, actually get the uh, fight commission to be willing to uh, re re restore Ali's license. Um, the fight did, in fact, serve the purpose that they had hoped for. Uh, at a crucial time, uh, it provided noise so that Keith didn't have to uh, worry about the fact that a bolt made a rather large uh, sound when he broke it. When he got to the um, office, there were two locks in the door, not the one that he remembered or that Bonnie Raines, who had done casing inside the FBI office, remembered. And in that moment, he thought, I think we're not going to be able to do this. And he called back to where the other burglars were and said, I think we might have to call it off. But they thought about it this very carefully and moved ahead. And um, he broke in a different door, one that they had planned not to enter because there was a huge filing cabinet on the other side of it. Afterwards, they drove to a small um, farmhouse on a Quaker uh, conference ground that Bill Davidon had borrowed for two weeks for the reading and sorting process. And within an hour, I mean, they, they had no idea. I think it's very important in contrast to the insider whistleblowers that we all know of, Dan Ellsberg um, and, uh, and Snowden. They knew what they were presenting to the public. Um, they had collected it purposefully. These people had no idea whether they would find a single file of any relevance. For all they knew, they might have, in the dark, when they picked everything out, they may have had mostly uh, useless personnel uh, pieces of paper, personnel files. But within an hour, as they gathered and started to go through what was in those suitcases, they found one file that made them realize um, that what they had done had not been in vain. And this file actually became emblematic of the burglary. It was a file in which agents were urged to enhance paranoia and make people think there's an FBI agent behind every mailbox. And even they were quite struck by that. Um, as I was when I received that in the first set of files that, that I got from them at the Washington Post. Ten days after the burglary, they sorted, they had completed sorting the files, dividing them into sets, and then sent them out in sequence of sequential sets over a period of two months. And these files were the first glimpse that the American public and Congress had of FBI files, even people in the Department of Justice, which is where the FBI is. And in the first set, in addition to that one, were the files that describe activ the activity of the FBI. Informers working on campuses included people, switchboard operators who had been hired, mail carriers, and mid-level college administrators. Every black student on the campus of Swarthmore College 
was being watched and had an FBI file, purely by reason of being black. That was one of the distinctions, one of the things I learned from the files that I thought was interesting. There was a somewhat different standard for uh, a, a white person being targeted by Hoover's FBI versus a black person being targeted by Hoover's FBI. For a white person to be targeted, um, you at least had to um, show some sign through uh, what, you, what you read, who you associated with, uh, letters you may have written to the editor, in the mildest form, I might add. You, used to, you at least had to show some sign of being subversive within his very broad range of what subversive meant. Uh, you did have to be revolutionary. You simply might have raised questions in an, a letter to the editor. But you did something as a white person that attracted their attention. For a black person, it was simply enough to be black. A, for Hoover to be black was to be dangerous and to be considered subversive automatically. And one of the uh, things that showed this so clearly, I think it was in the very first set of files that I received, was the files that, that revealed the blanket surveillance in the black community. It was really spelled out quite clearly that um, a black person might come under surveillance at any place a person might normally be expected to go, uh, the corner store, uh, the classrooms in high school or college, churches, libraries, bars, restaurants, just anywhere. And then there were prescriptions for the people who should be hired to be informers in black communities. And students, any student who was going to go to college, any black student who was going to be, go to college, that person was considered a prize so that that person could then become an informer on other black students. One thing that illustrates how invasive this was is that at that time, throughout the 60s, early 70s, every FBI agent was required to have at least one informer who reported to him on a regular basis about the activities of black people. We're not saying revolutionary black people. We're just saying black people. And in DC, um, every FBI agent was required to have at least six informers who reported to him regularly on the activities of black people. One of the things that was revealed in the, in the media files that the public didn't know about was the existence of a security index. It had started many years before. And this was an index kept by the FBI, and it was continually expanding. And it was an index of the people that the FBI would uh, detain without habeas corpus in the case of a national emergency. He had been told by one attorney general, Francis Biddle, that this was unconstitutional and to get rid of it. And uh, he said he would, but he didn't, and he simply renamed it. And Biddle also didn't do any continuing oversight and had no idea that his order had not been followed. But the worst was yet to come. There was a file in the media files that had um, that was a, a routing slip, just a routing slip, and it had a, in big letters at the top the label COINTELPRO. And um, I reported on the file that it was attached to, but I didn't use the term COINTELPRO because it didn't seem to, I, well, I certainly didn't know what the connection was. 
that this file that I wrote about went into a large category of things called COINTELPRO. And the article that I wrote did have an impact because the FBI was watching to see if that file would be written about because they knew the COINTELPRO routing slip was attached to it. And they, if that uh, came out in public, they then knew that for the first time, the term COINTELPRO was outside the bureau. And what, the, what that caused to happen when they realized it was outside the bureau was at first Hoover wrote to the people in charge of the offices around the country and said, um, just increase secrecy on these operations, but keep them up. In fact, make them even more intense. And then two weeks later, officials said, you yeah, know, this is too dangerous. And they said, Let's get rid of the name, not the program, but let's get rid of the name. And then we'll just, each one will be approved separately from now on. So along came Carl Stern, a little more than a year after the, uh, the media burglary. And Carl was a reporter covering uh, legal affairs for NBC television at the time. And Carl, uh, in the Senate Judiciary Committee one day on someone's desk saw that cover uh, routing slip and thought, that's a strange term. Um, I wonder what that is. And because Carl did that, the next building block in the ultimate discoveries that were made during the Church Committee uh, took place. He took that media file and he wrote a letter to... Um, the acting attorney general at the time. And he asked for the um, founding documents that would explain what COINTELPRO was. And the um, Kleindienst, the acting attorney general at the time, said that they would, it would endanger national security to release this information and, and, and turned him down. Um, and that's what also had been said when we wrote the, the media stories a year earlier. But Carl kept uh, persevering, asking the FBI and the Justice Department. Finally, he sued. And in the end of, of, of 1973, a judge ordered that those founding papers be, be turned over to Carl. And the, the pub, at this point, public interest and, and Congress interest uh, ratcheted up considerably. At the time the media files came out, there was, for the first time, a demand for an investigation of the FBI, a demand in Congress and a demand from the leading editorial pages in, in, the, in the country. It didn't go anywhere, but it started an, uh, a movement that, that continued. And then with the exposure of the COINTELPRO documents, uh, interest uh, increased considerably. And the COINTELPRO operations turned out to be the meanest and most vicious of the Hoover operations. The actions that people had no idea were being done by the FBI. And one that probably all of you have heard about at some time was the, the effort by Hoover to get Martin Luther King to commit suicide. And that was probably the worst of, of his actions against King. But in fact, there were many, and they took place over the entire time that, that King was a, a public activist. Um, there were other actions that uh, resulted in, in death. For instance, um, in Chicago in 1969, uh, Fred Hampton, the uh, leader in the Black Panthers in Chicago, president of the of Black Panthers at that time, 
was killed. What had happened there uh, was that a, an FBI informer in Chicago um, be, became part of the Chicago Panthers and um, do a diagram of the apartment where Fred Hampton lived, including uh, a, a drawing of what he labeled Fred's bed. And a short time after that, he submitted it to the Chicago police, and the Chicago police hired a shooter who went in and shot and killed Fred Hampton in, while he slept one night. And a short time after that, the FBI informer uh, was given a reward and, and a thank you letter for having caused that murder. We didn't know any of this as it was happening. Again, people had no idea what was happening until these files started coming out. Now, the tipping point came. There were lots of activity started being generated, 73, 74. Um, for the first time, the Justice Department took some notice and started questioning the FBI. The FBI refused to give the Justice Department, even at that stage after some had become public, refused to give the Justice Department original files. The tipping point that made the investigation possible came in late 1974, when Seymour Hersh wrote a story in the New York Times that revealed that the CIA was also engaged in domestic spying and had been for a number of years. And this was against the charter of the CIA. It was not permitted to do operations in the United States, except as they pertain to foreign, foreign enemies. Less than a month after that, um, Congress that couldn't wait. Uh, there was pressure to do something. And that's when the decision was made in both houses of Congress to conduct official investigations of all intelligence agencies. Since its publication in 2009, Tom Palmer's Realizing Freedom, Libertarian Theory, History and Practice has been the recipient of wide acclaim both in the United States and across the globe. The expanded paperback edition adds greater depth and dimension to the book, with new essays drawn from Palmer's decades of work on the theory of justice, multiculturalism, democracy, and limited government, among many other topics. Get your copy today at Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.